everybody or good afternoon whenever you're listening to this welcome to the showgirl tip of the day podcast and i am michelle bruckner here with a very lovely amy covo hi amy <laughs> hi michelle how are you today happy new year we're recording this new year's day happy new year my dear it is such a treat to be here with you Amy and I met in Berlin, Germany. When I was over there, I had done a national, an international tour of a chorus line. And then an audition happened at a theater in Berlin called Theater des Vestens. And Amy was in the current company, the cast that was already performing of Hello, Dolly. And right. I auditioned for the production that was being mounted next which was Damn Yankees. Over the next, I would say, eight months, we became friends through our mm -hmm. mutual friend, Leslie, and we had many happy times in Berlin, and we have stayed friends ever since. Amy is a na uh, native New Yorker, and right. she grew up in New York in the 80s, which... <laughs> let's, let's start there, my dear, my dear, dear friend. Let's start there because... The people who live in New York now, they are living in a completely different land. Please tell our listeners what it was like to be a kid in New York City in the 80s. Oh my gosh, where do I begin? You're absolutely right, Michelle. It was a different New York City. Imagine the word was you can always find an affordable apartment. <laughs> oh, New York in the 80s. And being in the business, being in this career that we've chosen, it was vibrant and scary at the same time. New York was coming out of the 1970s where it was broke, there was high crime, um, there were a lot of problems in the city, as you can imagine. So the 80s was almost like a breakout period. Of course, fashion in New York was extreme. And uh, I had uh, extremely short hair back then and was experimenting with the whole kind of Madonna scene, um, a lot of black rubber on my wrists, but it was, it was incredibly alive. There were new productions, new ideas, new dance styles coming out of, I guess one would say classic training we started to break into a whole new, the video music scene, video dance, the whole productions around Michael Jackson, Madonna, the music groups. So that drew my attention into new directions. But, oh my dear, I, being a true New Yorker, there's so much I could talk about being a kid in New York in the eighties. Um, yeah, I, again, it's just, it, so much. I, I think that I have a few friends who grew up in the city and it seems that your parents were lovely parents, but there was a lot of freedom. I grew up in the suburbs mm -hmm. and when I was a teenager, I, 
I went to a different neighborhood to try to smoke a cigarette. And when I came home, my mother was standing in the kitchen with her arms crossed. And she said, how was that cigarette? So everybody was watching you at all times. And from what I've heard the stories you tell, I feel like you had a little bit of freedom. Is that true? That's true. I was blessed with parents who were rather liberal and very much believed that we should make our way safely, not be too crazy, but we should discover life and take our time doing it and experiment. Now they weren't hippies. My father was often very concerned, but you said something very important. There was a sense of freedom. In the eighties, there was this, again, this sort of breakout feeling. Um, I remember spending a tremendous amount of time in clubs and gosh, the Roxy, even then on roller skates, taking quads downtown, taking either Broadway straight down or 10th Avenue straight down. There was a lot of opportunity as a teenager to really grow, to experiment, and to just have oh my God, so much fun doing it. I, I love New York. When I think of New York in the 80s, it's a, a, a time of new beginnings, coming out of a degree of conservatism um, and a lot of experimenting. I think that you have several college courses in you, one of them being New York in the 80s. And then let's segue into my favorite era. So maybe this is my favorite era of my life because I was in Germany, I was 27. And I think 27 is like a perfect age. You are old enough to know a little bit and young enough still to be like, I was at the top of my game dancing, the 90s in Berlin. So let's talk about how you got over to Germany. You booked West Side Story. Is that correct? That came after my arrival. I Okay, was... so let's go back then. Okay. How did you start auditioning in New York? Let's talk about that because I have a lot of listeners who are students of mine and they always ask, how do you get jobs? How do you audition? So let's talk about how you started to book as a performer. My high school was professional children's school, sort of the, the private version of performing arts. I walk by there every day. Yay. Do you know it well? And we were small classes. So uh, even as a young teenager from 14, I was surrounded by other professional kids. Now I knew that music, theater, dance was where I wanted to be. I, I knew that from a young age. So not to, to wax too much the past, um, I come from music. I come from music and music theory. And dance and gymnastics was a, the means for, well, my mother was concerned about my coordination and my weight. <laughs> so I began to take ballet and began to take gymnastics at a place called the Turnverein, a German club on the Upper East Side. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And dance was a challenge for me. But now back to your question. So I was always involved in some way or the other, the performing arts. I was as a child, a classical guitarist. But being at PCS, Professional Children's School, I was so inspired by my schoolmates. And we were 14, 15, 16. 
And it was through that, that I, that and the leadership of my aunt, my aunt's influence, that I discovered Broadway musicals at the age of 14. One of them um, was Pippin, very, very young when I saw Pippin and fell in love with the production, the choreography, the look of the show. I was just this young kid. But how I began auditioning was I met well, one of my schoolmates. I met Cortez. He goes by Cortez Alexander. He had this incredible sense of music, of harmony. And he really supported me as a performer, not just as a musician, a singer, and then a gymnastic dancer kid. But he was like, you got to be out there. You, you, you've got to perform. And we began picking up backstage which you talked about in one of your episodes. And I have to giggle because I'm like, yes, backstage, we get it the night before and we look for auditions, open calls where you are not yet a union member. And we'd look for any audition that we thought as kids, we were perfect for. I'm perfect <laughs> for that chorus. And we would, we would book, we would book two wherever those rehearsals, the, excuse me, the um, auditions were being held. Now, granted, I was a young teenager. I really was not old enough, but I learned from a very young age what was required to get through those auditions. And in the beginning, we could sing, oh, 32 bars. And progressively, because hundreds of us would show up, the days of the open call, for girl chorus, non-union, non-equity, 600, 700 girls lining up at the, at the audition studios or theater, that was normal. And I started to get it. I had to be at the front of the line. We'd get there at 6, 6.30 in the morning, summer, winter, rain, snow, with our coats, our music, our dance shoes and our dance bag ready to audition. I started at a really young age and I'm so grateful for it because it wasn't easy. Those cold, icy mornings, not knowing if I was really the right type, but just going for it. You learn some hard knocks and you learn what a, being a professional really means. And then really choosing those auditions that came later. That sense, that sense of hunger you don't have that you should just try to do something else right now because if you don't have that feeling of like being willing to stand outside for hours and being willing to you know like if you're broke you buy a bagel and you make it last all day a bagel and an apple and you just nibble on that like it is not it is no joke and so what are some of the first jobs that you booked Strangely enough, I started booking soap operas as background extra, off-Broadway chorus. My Broadway story is a long one. We won't go down that rabbit hole. The uh, Broadway auditions for a Broadway show, that was my greatest dream. Um, but mostly, uh, oh goodness, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of the shows I did. Once Upon a Mattress, Oklahoma. Um, uh, oh gosh, I should have my resume in front of me. It seems so long ago. I booked those chorus positions. I have to admit, because of my size, 
back in the 80s and even the early 90s, by that time I was in Germany, my size was a, a hindrance, especially in the 80s. How tall are you? 5'2". Okay. And in centimeters, 160. So I, I, we just jumping back to the hardships of auditioning, I had to learn the hard way. Uh, no, I can't audition for Bob Fosse, who is looking for five, six and taller, or even five, seven and taller. But I was determined he was going to love me. But you learn through the hardships of rejection. You have to be real. You have to be focused. You have to accept who you are. And with that, go forward with confidence. And also that is something you cannot change. You can't change the fact that you are five foot two. You have to just say, okay, well, I am five foot two. I'm going to keep going for jobs and whoever will hire me will hire me. Hearing you talk, hearing the energy in your voice, you have so much to offer these young performers now. So when you do move back, and we're going to talk about that too. When you do move back, I hope you consider becoming like a manager or like something where you can use all this knowledge. Thank you for saying that. Thank you so much. It soothes the soul that uh, the time, the work, the hard work, the, the years of dedication to a career um, can be recognized. It is my wish to come home, to manage a group, to if possible, do coaching, do some, these talks, which, you know, like the TED Talks, to really do yeah. a presentation, hoping that people would be interested in the process. This is a tough business. It is absolutely tough. And in the 80s and the early 90s, it was as tough, the amount of incredible talent that was out there. It's something I often miss, though. At that time in the 80s, there was a sense of, yes, very strong competition, but there was also an equal sense of supporting each other. We cheered our colleagues who were getting that step ahead while wanting it as much. You said the hunger and being willing to starve for the art. I appreciate the recognition of all of those years that not only I, you, our colleagues have invested into this business. And what you learn with time, what you learn with the hard knocks, the successes, the audience being silent at the end of your scene. Was it supposed to be silent or were they bored? Learning the craft of theater, of performing, of music. And I'd like to hope and think that I have something worthwhile to share with those that are st just stepping into this career, into this business now in the year 2021, where we have Netflix, where we have overnight stars, where we have Instagram stars, where we have a whole new series of platforms where the competition, I don't know how supportive it is, but that's what you know our young artists are looking at. So I'd like to think what also what you're offering in this wonderful podcast um, can be really listened to and we can share something with the younger performer. Well, that's why I made it. I made it because I teach dance classes and I always want to sit down and talk with everybody, but we have our dance work to do. So I never yeah. want to cloud the dance classes with storytelling. So I thought to myself, let me do this podcast and then 
I can tell everybody my stories and my friends' stories. And Brilliant. hopefully, hopefully it helps another performer and hopefully it gives somebody else a glimmer of inspiration and hope and joy. And, you know, this, the last 10 years have been a little bit difficult for me and for you. Not, I mean, honestly, we are very privileged. I cannot say like, when I say difficult, it's just a different, we have had to recreate our own identities because both of us, I feel I'm speaking for myself, but both of us really loved that prime period of being these dancers who could just like kick our faces and, and look gorgeous in our costumes, not to toot our own horns, but we looked pretty good. I have to say. (laughs) I have to agree. (laughs) You know, so anyway, um, my, my hope is that somebody who is listening to this just enjoys, enjoys. And then I try not to live in the past but I feel like what we can share, which is what I want to talk about next, because I so want you to create a college course about Berlin in the 90s. Because when I went there, it was like a fairy tale. It was like going backwards in time. And I don't mean to sound like condescending, but when I first got there, just the sounds of the ambulances and the way the cars looked, the subways and the clothing even I was like oh this is pretty cool so how did you get over there I was working as a choreographic assistant to Rick Atwell Rick was uh, he was a disruptor in the dance scene when he came from LA in the early 1980s And a lot of our colleagues who are Broadway performers had studied with him. And I was one of his first students. Working with Rick over years, he started to get opportunities in Europe. We were in Amsterdam. He was teaching, I was assisting and working on a project in Amsterdam when the same director of that project said, hey, I've got a gig in Berlin. This is 1988 why don't you come and do the choreography and come to Berlin with me? We were in Amsterdam and I was all ready to travel Europe, go to Spain where my heritage is from. And, and Rick said, oh, I've got this gig with Franz, Franz Mareinen is this Belgian director. And why don't you come with? I'm like, oh, Berlin, I don't know. Isn't that that city with the wall? <laughs> oh, I was so naive. Little did and you know. <laughs> Little did I know, Michelle. Oh, and so I said, oh, why not? It'll be an adventure. So we arrived in Berlin and, oh, it's an experience, a time of my life I will never forget. I will never forget how it felt, how the air smelled, the temperature, the gray upon gray upon gray. And it was a West Berlin behind a wall enclosed in East Germany, 1988. It was uh, November of 1988, November 3rd, an odd and difficult day. Um, and so we came to do this show. The show was called Das Liebeskanz- 
Konzil, forgive my bad German at the moment, das Liebeskonzil, which means the Council of Love. And this was going to be similar to the project in Amsterdam. It was going to be an upsetting kind of rock opera based on this small book, which dealt with heaven, hell, and the follies of man. There's more to tell about all of that. But um, arriving in Berlin, again, I will never forget arriving at Tegel Airport, 1988, Stepping off the plane, we were picked up by uh, one of the production assistants of the Schiller Theater, where this production would take place. And this fog of ice cold air, gray sky. And at that time, the life in West Berlin was very limited. And the smell of coal in the air as we stepped out to get into the taxi, it hit me like a wall. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in Berlin. And as a New Yorker, I felt so displaced and yet on a grand adventure. That's how I got to Berlin with my friend Rick as a choreographic assistant and his assistant, um, November, 1988. That's, yeah. It's interesting to hear your first impressions of Berlin because mine are really similar. Like as I walked the streets, and when I was working for Teatro des Vestens, my I was subletting from our friend Joachim and the apartment was walking distance from the theater. And as I walked home, I often felt, I was like, I've been here before. Uh, this is my true home. Like very, very like bizarre, bizarre feelings. Or when I would sit down on a park bench I would feel like a ghost was coming to sit with me. It was a very like, and, and it was okay. Like I wasn't scared. I just was like, I never felt alone there even when, and I spent a lot of time alone there, but I never felt alone. And I felt protected and loved very like, just like you're meant to be here. Why don't you stay here with us? Like that's the feeling that I got. And that sounds a little kooky, but you, I know you know what I mean. Oh, Michelle, I know exactly what you mean. And you said something about ghosts. I felt a very, you feel the history of this city. And especially when you arrived, when I first arrived, without, you know, trying to create the image in my mind of a Sally Bowles or Berlin 1933, there was just this energy. And at the same time, I also never felt afraid or alone in the sense of isolated. It was, I felt I stepped into a film noir. It was, everything was black and white. And the sense of, even then in the eighties, there were these, these below levels. So, so um, you'd have to go down to a basement, these small music cafes. Everyone smoked, everyone drank wine. There was a sense of, of life and containment at the same time. You could not escape the wall. And that is also a whole series of stories traveling to Hamburg through the checkpoints or going into East Berlin through the checkpoints. But you said something which I agree with. There was something very special about West Berlin and about Berlin in the 90s after the reunification something very special and a, a life and an energy that I never experienced anywhere else. Were you there when the wall fell? 
I was. I was doing a, it was a three month sort of a workshop teaching in Belgium of all places, Bruges. There's a film about Bruges, a tiny little ancient city in Belgium. I've been there. Ah, uh, and beautiful, beautiful. beautiful. Uh, but uh, at that time, and, and please forgive me, anyone from Belgium and from Bruges listening, there was not much going on. <laughs> it was quiet, um, still. I felt there, I felt I had stepped back in time. But I was visiting uh, the guy I was with at the time, and I visited exactly on the weekend that this monumental event happened. And I'll never forget, it was early morning and he, came, he woke me up and he said, you won't believe what's happening. I'm like, what, what, what? He says, the wall, the wall's opened up. They've, they've opened up the wall. We have to go right away. And we got dressed, drove towards um, the Zeep St. Juli, this big giant boulevard that leads to the Ziegesäule, so the, the um, victory angel, which leads right to Brandenburger Tour, the Brandenburger Gate. And there it was, thousands upon thousands of people making their way towards the wall. And on the other side, hundreds, eventually thousands of people coming through the opening, the checkpoints, this, this space, and people jumping, crawling on top, standing on shoulders of friends to get on top of the wall, to stand and cheer. It was, I mean, monumental. It was amazing as a New Yorker who just happened to be visiting the city where I was going to be staying and working and living on this very day of this peaceful, this peaceful change, this, this political change. It, it was, um, even to this day, I cannot articulate the experience. It was so amazing. I just remember crying and thinking, why am I crying? I'm just crying. I, I'm not German, but this is so amazing. This is so special. And this sense of love pouring from both sides of the wall. And that would continue for days, for weeks. Amazing. Amazing. I'm, I almost, I, I'm on the brink of tears right now. I remember you telling me one story about West Side Story and how it was in East Berlin, and they gave you little tiny Coca-Cola bottles as a gift. Can you, can you tell the listeners about your West Side experience? I have to say, this was also one of those marker experiences. I was, in order to make money, I was teaching. So I was teaching jazz dance. I don't know how, but the original Broadway company, European tour had arrived in Berlin. Now this was just after reunification, this was, so 1990. I knew they were there and I was looking forward to seeing the show when they got it put up. But I was teaching, that also is its own story. And the studio had you know, glass panels in the door so people could watch class from outside. And I'm teaching and I'm teaching and I see this person on the other side of the door while I'm teaching jumping up and down and waving. And it's an old friend, Eddie Otero. <gasps> Eddie o I know him. Yes. And Eddie, if you know Eddie, he's one of the most beautiful, loving, gorgeous souls on this planet. And a superior dancer. He also did Chicago. He's done everything. Eddie's jumping and waving. And I'm taken aback. I'm, my thought is, am I dreaming? 
So cut to the chase. I step outside. I'm like, Eddie Otero, what are you doing here? And he's like, I found you. I found you. I, Eddie, I can't believe I found you. You have to, you have time after class. I'm like, of course I do. We're finished class. I go out and we begin to talk. He said, are you free? What are you doing? Are you teaching too much? I need you. I'm like, you need me? He said, yes, you know, we're here with West Side Story. He said, they're looking for an understudy, Anita. And I'm like, bing, 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 bing. My eyes and my head's going, an understudy, Anita? And he said, yes, can I put you in touch? We want to bring you to, a, to the audition. And I'm like, well, of course, put me in touch. I'm very happy to audition. He could see I was thrilled. Anita, the original Broadway European tour, and they're looking for the second Anita. I'm like, yes, get me there. The strange thing is all I remember is within a day or two, and this is a strange sort of dip in my memory. I know that I got a phone call and I got a phone call from the dance captain saying, we need for you to come on this day at this time, please bring all of your dance shoes and be prepared to sing. We want you to sing a boy like that. So I'm like, okay, done. Being the true New Yorker, I've got my tights, my high, my high heel character shoes, my capizio character shoes with the brace. Cause I know that in my head, I was thinking they're probably going to make me do dance at the gym or the, the ballet. I thought, be prepared. I remember going and the audition was being held at the rehearsal room for the opera, so the opera house on Unter den Linden. Oh, exactly. And this house was still in a time capsule because this was on what we would say the former East. It was East Berlin. This whole experience too is, oh, it, it's, capsulized history that would change so dramatically, but to the audition. So listeners, when Amy says house, she means theater. Some of you might not know that, but that's, um, especially in Europe, don't you think, Amy, that's how people talk? They say house when they mean theater? Yes. The opera house is the opera theater. Love it. So you obviously booked it. Booked it. And then what happened? Oh my gosh, New York style. We are learning Leonard Bernstein's music. We're learning the original choreography at the original tempos. We are working with the original script. I am working with people from Broadway. I am working with some of the finest dancers and singers. We have 12 days to put up the entire show. I was living the life, being in Berlin, but doing a Broadway production as the second Anita. I can't tell you the thrill and the hard work. We were all working hard, dance at the gym. So I should backtrack just a little. In order to be the second cast Anita, I needed to be one of the, um, the Puerto Rican girls. So my character's name was Estela, which if you know Spanish means star. So Estela. And I was one of the girls. So I had to learn the whole, um, I like to be in America, dance at the gym, the, the ballet. Oh, 
the, this, the dream ballet, um, the scherzo, which you don't see in West Side Stories anymore, the, the children's ballet. We learned all of this in 12 days. Then we put up our 10, 10 out of 12s, the tech rehearsals, moving stages, the, and, and all of this, I'm learning the track of the chorus. Opening night, bombastic. Second day after the rehearsals, Aranita, a beautiful performer, Yamil Borges. Yamil Borges, wonderful. It's the second day, I'm getting ready for my track, chorus girl, and they come to me. Amy, are you ready? And I'm like, oh, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock in my head. You're going on tonight. I had had no official rehearsals. No put-ins. No put-ins. Thank you, Michelle. No put-ins. And it was a true-to-life Broadway experience in Berlin where kids, you just have to be ready. You have to be ready. I had done my homework during scenes, the scenes bore like that. Any scene with Bernardo and Anita, the final scene, which is so brutal, and that's that's spacing and timing, the, the, um, the last scene with Anita and the Jets. To the finish, I had always watched. I had sat in the corner. I, instead of eating lunch, instead of going to get something to drink, I sat in the corner of the rehearsal room. I watched them rehearse. That is going back to all of our New York training. If you get the job, you got to be ready. Don't wait for someone to hand it to you, to give you the time to stroke your hair and wrap their arms around your shoulder and say, okay, let's take you through this. No. When you were called to be an understudy, a swing, a super swing, we had to do the homework. You ever get that position, each individual that's got that contract, it's your job to be ready. And they walk up to you and say, you're on. I'd like to thank Amy Kovo for being a guest Part one only, one of many, on the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast. You can find her if you're interested in coaching with her. A-I-M-E-E-C-O-V-O at yahoo.com. Amy Kovo at yahoo.com. Thanks, Amy. The Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast has original music composed by Joshua Holloway. Find him on YouTube, Joshua Holloway Music. This podcast is written by Michelle Bruckner and edited by Michelle Bruckner and Joshua Holloway. Find me on Instagram, Showgirl Tip of Day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week with a new episode. Oh,